You are listening to Talking Images, the official podcast of icmforum.com. Well, hello everyone. I'm Chris and I'm very happy to welcome you to our first ever crossover episode. David Hartley from Autism Through Cinema is here to discuss Hal Ashby's classic Being There, starring Peter Sellers in the role of Shans. And we'll get a little time to talk about the Autism Through Cinema project as well and what they do. So just uh, to start it all off, thank you so much uh, for coming on, David. Uh, Before we start talking about uh, being there, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got into cinema and how you joined up with the uh, Autism Through Cinema project? Great. Hi. Yeah. Thanks very much. And uh, thanks uh, so much for inviting me on and, and yeah, doing this little crossover episode. I'm very excited to be here. Um, yeah. So my name is David Hartley. I um, I mean, I've been into, you know, film for, for very many years. Um, and I, uh, I first sort of really started getting into it as a kind of academic discipline back in my A-levels, actually. I did a film studies A-level. And from that point, I've been really interested in just like the study of film and I've been through various uh, different degrees studying it. Most recently, I've been doing a PhD, which I finished about this time next year, actually, uh, this time Ooh. last year. So I'm now actually Dr. David Hartley, which I, <laughs> I have a lot of pleasure telling people. Um, not that I, it's really done. Wrong. Sorry, say again. I introduced you all wrong. Oh no no no! Don't worry. Um, it's too uh, it's too mortifyingly embarrassing to be called doctor. Anyway, I still haven't gotten used to it. Even after even after a year of um, of, of the sort of post PhD life, it's still very weird. But anyway, uh, yes, my PhD. So I did a PhD at the University of Manchester. It was a creative writing PhD, but it actually ended up being a bit more of a, a hybrid project, really. So, or as we like to call it in academia, interdisciplinary. Yeah, I had to produce a kind of creative part of the project. So for me, that, that was a, ended up being a novel. But I also had to write a thesis. And the thesis was much more based in film and TV and sort of screen theory, film theory, that kind of thing. Partly because that was my, um, that was partly my academic background at that point anyway. And, and so the two things ended up sort of talking to each other and complementing each other. And there was a bit of creative sort of literary theory. And then there was also a sort of more critical uh, film studies uh, side of it as well. It's all great, very good, a lot of fun, a lot of crossover, all sorts of interesting things coming out of that. Um, and the topic, the overall topic for the whole project, both the creative and the critical side, was autism. So I um, I come to this because I have a sister who is autistic, my older sister. So autism has always been a major part of my life, not as major a part as it is for her, obviously, because she's actually autistic and I'm and I'm not. But it's certainly been a big part of my childhood and also a big influence on me as a writer as well. I'm always interested in how my writing has been sort of shaped and crafted by kind of growing up with 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 my sister. And related to that, this sort of more specific topic, and we might end up talking a little bit about this in relation to this film, but um, the specific topic that I was looking at was how autism is represented or expressed or explored, I guess, in works of science fiction and, and fantasy and the weird and that kind of thing. So a lot of my creative writing tends to sort of be in those in those categories, in those genre categories. And I was interested in how autism intersects with those. Um, because for me, the, the influence of my sister and her way of seeing the world has kind of 
uh, had a, had quite an influence on this on the way that I write and the way that I and the sort of narratives that I enjoy within sort of sci-fi fantasy that kind of thing. Um, yeah, and it was really good. And during the process of all of this, I was attending conferences and writing papers and all that sort of thing. And I came across soon, quite quite soon, came across the Autism Through Cinema project. Now, the Autism Through Cinema project started at around about the same time that I started my PhD, so at around about 2017 initially, although it wouldn't really get going until until about 2018, really. It's a Wellcome Trust-funded uh, four-year project based at Queen Mary uh, University of London and is led by professors Professor Janet Harbord and Dr. Stephen Eastwood. And it's a kind of investigation into the relationship of autism and cinema and film. Um, and it's there's all sorts of different things going on in there. There's kind of like archival research of all kind of medical films featuring uh, real autistic people from like even before autism got its kind of name in the 1940s. Um, there's also, there's a film being made. Stephen Eastwood is making a film. He's collaborating with a number of autistic filmmakers to make a film. And there was a, there was a season of screenings at the Barbican in London last year, um, of, of films, which I was involved with a little bit. And then one of the other things that came out of it was this, uh, podcast, the Autism Through Cinema podcast. Partly came about actually because of the lockdown, because suddenly when the lockdown came in, in 2020, it sort of cancelled quite a lot of the things that the project were involved with at the time. So they decided to move a lot of it online. And that's when they, uh, Janet approached me and asked me if I wanted to record a few episodes of this podcast. And then I did, and I really enjoyed it and ended up sticking around. And nowadays I, I, I practically run the podcast or at least co-run the podcast, which is really good fun. And so the Autism Through Cinema podcast is, it's been going now for, I think we've got about, I think we've got over 20 episodes now. Um, and yeah, basically what we do is it's myself, Janet, and, um, three or four other, uh, co-hosts, most of whom are autistic, um, autistic creatives, autistic film journalists, and so on. And we basically just pick a film, watch it, and then gather together and talk about it really much the same way that we're doing today. And it's been great. And, you know, we've covered all sorts of wonderful, a wonderful sort of broad range of films. It's not just the obvious films. In fact, actually, we've sort of avoided quite a lot of the obvious films because we haven't done an episode on Rain Man, for example. What we tend to do is we tend to say, okay, does anyone know of a film that in some way kind of connects with autism or expresses autism or you feel like it might explore autism in some way, even if it, there aren't any autistic characters or it never says the word autism? And that's what we've ended up doing. And, and quite a lot of the films that we've covered sort of explore like alternative ways of being. And we, we look at that through an autistic lens. Some examples being, uh, we looked at a razor head, for example, at one point, uh, we looked at the Paul Thomas Anderson film, Punch Drunk Love, um, Good Time by the Safdie brothers. Uh, we looked at Nightmare Before Christmas. We've looked at Cars, the Pixar film. All sorts of weird and wonderful films. Cat People, the, um, film noir kind of horror film. Lots of really interesting films. So it's, it continues to be a really fascinating exploration of, um, yeah, where we can sort of identify autism within films, perhaps not necessarily or always the most obvious places. And we're interested in also how, of like how film language kind of can create this, the a sort of cinematic experience of autism as well. We looked in particular at Darren Aronofsky's uh, film Pi, which I think does that in quite interesting ways. We've never looked, however, at um, at this film, at Being There. 
Excellent. That sounds really interesting, David. And uh, it's it's funny that we actually have the same origin story as well. This podcast was also started after the pandemic because we just uh, wanted a different way to express our passion of cinema. And I think that's that's a good point to bring in uh, our other co-hosts as well, Tom and uh, Saul, and uh, start talking a little bit about being there, which, while probably not as obvious as Rain Man is one of the first films that uh, usually gets talked about when you know, the topic of autism in cinema comes up, even though the character of Chance is never specifically said to uh, be neurodivergent or on the spectrum. Uh, though that's probably not something that was talked about as much in the 70s. Um, I'd love to hear from both of you first, then we can get back to David, because uh, I know he actually watched this for the first time uh, last, uh, first time yesterday, which will be exciting to hear, like, a completely fresh view, but uh, both uh, you, Tom, and you, Saul, you you watched it, and I I did the same yesterday, so so, uh, talk to me a little bit about uh, your first reaction to seeing Being There, and uh, then your reaction now, re-watching it specifically in the context of uh, discussing it through the lens of autism through cinema. Uh, We can probably start with you, Tom. Thanks, Chris. So I first watched Being There, I think it was about 12, 13 years ago. And at the time, I hadn't considered it from an autistic perspective whatsoever. I did quite enjoy the film. It fell just short of greatness for me. So it was a film that I was eager to revisit to see if my perspective had changed over the years. And rewatching it again this week proved very fruitful for me. I really enjoyed the film, uh, even when considering it through the perspective of uh, this podcast episode of an autistic approach. And I think there's just so much to unpack and discuss. Uh, So I don't want to delve too much into that yet because obviously we want to hear from our guest. But I'm very excited to get into the nitty gritty and talk about this further. So Being There is a film that I first saw around 15 years ago. And the first time I saw it, I thought it was absolutely amazing. I thought it was hilarious. I rewatched it uh, twice. And then something happened around 12 years ago. I started my teaching career. During my teaching career, I've worked with a number of kids on the autism spectrum. And when I came to do my fourth viewing of the film, which was around five years ago, I could not get over how incredibly mean-spirited it seemed. And the parts that I was laughing at were thought hilarious the first two or three times were things that were making me really cringe and rewatch. And I couldn't even believe it. I think I rewatched it for a fifth time shortly afterwards, maybe a year afterwards, had the same reaction. And then I just watched it a few days ago for this podcast. I think I'm perhaps not quite so negative on it on sixth viewing as I was on fourth viewing when I first realized it's about an undiagnosed autistic person. That was like a real shock to me. It really fell in my esteem. Um, It's slowly risen a bit higher up in my esteem due to the quality of the performances. I think they're absolutely amazing, especially Peter Sellers. But um, yeah, for better or worse, I think a lot of it is incredibly mean-spirited and a lot of it's, you know, 
about laughing at the autistic traits that Chance has. So it's a bit of an uncomfortable film for me. It is well made technically. It is well acted. Just some of the humor in there I just find very misguided. That's a, that's a really interesting uh, take for sure. And I think I actually had a similar reaction on my first viewing to the one you had on your fourth because I have um, autistic people in my family. But uh, on my second viewing more recently, I didn't really feel like Chance was necessarily mocked. Uh, I think, if anything, I, I struggled to kind of find the comedy in it because I wasn't sure if the humor was coming from Sean's being odd or from pe the neurotypical people being odd and <laughs> just not being able to understand what he's talking about because it's, you know, it's quite clear that he's when he's talking about, you know, his room upstairs, which is where he literally sleeps, they assume he's making some kind of grand parable to heaven. When he's talking about the garden outside, they make the leap that he's talking about the economy. I, I think that the, the one thing I struggle with here is that I'm not 100% sure about what the message is. Is it just humor in this kind of miscommunication? Is it that they just assume that uh, he is neurotypical and read it as if it has to be something grander? Which, yes, I mean, there's something fun in just misunderstandings. Or is it saying something about society? And if so, what is it saying? Uh, what is it, if it is a satire that is, what is it mocking? It's, and some of those things that it could be mocking could look very poor on how the film kind of used chance. So uh, it, it is a complicated film for me, but I will say that Peter Sellers was phenomenal in it. I think all of the acting performances and the craft itself is really strong. And I, I would love to just start talking about just the various scenes in it and uh, how uh, Sellers plays it as well, because it's not really played with the most obvious comedy. It's played with far more melancholy, which uh, hit me a lot harder uh, this time. But, but I'd love to hear uh, David's perspective coming into this completely fresh and uh, also coming from the specific background that he has uh, to, talking about autism uh, through cinema. So what, what was your reaction on your first viewing of being there, David? Yeah, so it's uh, well, it's really interesting hearing all of your thoughts on the film, actually, because you're all hitting on various things that I thought as I was watching it. So my sort of um, connection with this film, really, is that, yeah, this was my my first time I'd, I'd watched it. I had been aware of it for a while, uh, and I kind of broadly knew what it was about, um, and I'd seen clips, I think. And I'd read also a, a couple of articles about it when I was doing my research around autism. There are only really a, a quite a small handful of films, relatively speaking, that are about autism or have autistic coded characters. And so this was one that was reg did regularly come up. Um, and I, I was very glad of the chance actually to watch it because I'd been sort of putting off watching it. And I think I'd been putting off watching it because I think I had assumed that it was um, a poor representation of autism. And I had assumed that it was going to be, as you were saying, Sol, a kind of laugh at the autistic character kind of vibe. And to a certain extent, I do agree with you, Sol. There is a bit of that. There is a bit of... Um, you know, Chance is this quirky and unusual character that is um, sort of the butt of of jokes a little bit. Although I don't think it's too bad necessarily, actually, because I do think that the film is trying to... It, I think it's trying more to try and satirise the kind of neurotypical society. I think the, the, the comedy, the humour that comes through it is the sort of use of Chance, I guess, as a kind of reflection on the, yeah, the, the kind of 
ridiculousness of neurotypical society, but very particularly that kind of upper class neurotypical society that sort of rubs shoulders with the elite and with the powerful and how everything that he says to these people is taken as a kind of grand, deep, meaningful metaphor, whereas really what he's saying is is very literal and very simple and, and very straightforward. And I thought that the film handled that quite well. I thought it was um, scripted quite well. I thought that, yeah, the performances are good. It's never too overblown either. It's kind of, it remains, a, it sort of retains a kind of gentle approach and quite a gentle attitude for the most part. And I quite enjoyed, it felt quite cozy in many ways. And it didn't, didn't sort of, it wasn't overbearing necessarily. Maybe a little bit at times, I thought it maybe dragged. I thought the pace was a bit off at some points, but maybe that's because it's a bit of an older film now and we're kind of uh, used to a bit more of a fast pace these days. But I, yeah, I, I sort of came away from it thinking, no, actually that is a, that's a, that's a well-made, well-performed film, but it does have multiple sort of, it does hit on multiple issues that are common to films about autistic characters. And I see now this film as kind of part of a kind of a trilogy of three films that came out around this time that sort of deal with these kinds of characters. And that being, so being there being the first one, Rain Man being the one that came next in sort of 1988, and then uh, Forrest Gump in 1944. And it feels to me like, 1994, sorry. And it feels to me like being there is a kind of quite a clear influence on Forrest Gump. Mm. And these three films taken together, there's a similarity with Chance, uh, Raymond from Rain Man, and Forrest mm. from Forrest Gump. There's a uh, there's clear appetite there for a kind of quirky and unusual or uh, autistic or autistic coded white male middle class um figure who um who sort of has to navigate a kind of journey through the strange neurotypical world but i think actually i think of the three of them being there probably does the best job at kind of shining the light on the absurdities of neurotypicality because the film is sort of meant to be a kind of satire, really, on the kind of ridiculousness of the various systems and the codes that neurotypical people have created in the world that sort of leaves other kind of neurodivergent people as outsiders. So it's, to me, it feels like being there shines shines more of a light on neurotypicality rather than on autism itself, and I think is kind of more successful in that way. Although we do have to be slightly careful using that word uh, because chance, it has to be said, like chance is never diagnosed as autistic in the film and the word is never used at any point. There's, you never get any mention of the word autism in the film. Actually, even like chance is never actually diagnosed at all with any kind of neurodivergence or even is there any sort of suggestion that he is neurodivergent? All the other characters almost seem to kind of mentally bend over backwards to sort of explain away chance's divergence a little bit, which I find quite interesting. I think we'll talk a bit more about that. But anyway, yeah, I do think I do think this film has value. I think I prefer it actually over Rain Man and Forrest Gump uh, for what it says and how it sort of explores neurodivergence. Yeah, that, that's a really interesting and nuanced uh, take, David. And I think when you're talking about the gentleness of it, that's one of the things that uh, I picked up on uh, very early too, and was clear from even the very first scene. Uh, and I was really impressed by how they set up the character by showing his uh, interest points. Uh, and obviously his big interest is TV, and that's something that uh, a lot of 
people don't as much brokers etc have is that you know they have this one main interest that they they focused on and you see him turning on the tv uh, getting up with the tv and doing the, also this gardening so he has the two interests and it, it's just setting up his characters and what he likes what he does they're setting up his routines he has a very specific morning routine that he clearly does every day and i think it, it's both in terms of filmmaking and as a performance it manages to show like you said gentleness um but i think just in this one scene like we don't go over multiple days etc we just instantly understand that this is what he does every single day this is who this character is and it's it's almost heartbreaking you can see something on his face that he's very very lonely you can see he's a little bit just out of place with it all he's at peace because it's in his routine but it's just the atmosphere is so melancholic. Uh, it, it's it's just a really interesting watch. I, I don't think I've seen that in a lot of films. And but to me, to, to me in a way, I think uh, those opening scenes. He seems quite content. He seems content. He seems quite happy. And the the disruption comes because the the old man that he he is the gardener for and who he has lived with his entire life dies, and therefore he has to leave the house that he has lived in. And in a curious way, he this house has become kind of the equivalent really of a kind of an institution it's like it's where he seemingly has lived his whole life um and he's never had any cause to leave this place he gets fed by the maid he gets his meals prepared for him he's got all his clothes he's got a room uh, and you know he's showing around the attorneys a little bit later on in the in the film in the near the beginning and he's saying this is my bathroom and this is my bedroom this is where i sleep this is my television etc and he seems quite content and happy in there but yeah, in a sense, he is lonely as well. But I wonder if that is a, a bit of a, a, a kind of a projection on the part of our, ourselves to look at him and think, yeah, this must be a lonely character. Whereas actually he seems quite happy in that, in that scenario. And it's only once he's left the house that, he, that it becomes quite clear that he has difficulty in kind of, sort of interacting and communicating with people. But then again, he's never, he never really has like, he always seems to be quite happy and comfortable. Even when he's talking to people, he approaches strangers, says hello to them. At one point, he approaches a street gang who pull a knife on him, and he seems kind of unfazed by that. And that was one of the things that slightly irritated me about about his character a little bit. While that was all quite amusing, it also I didn't feel was particularly realistic. And I felt that, um, you know, if a real life autistic person was trying to navigate the the, the mean streets of Washington D.C., they're going to run into a lot of problems, and it's going to be uh, a lot more stressful and a lot more intense and. It's only by virtue of the fact that he's dressed in the way that he is in this this very nice suit and that he speaks very eloquently and that he seems to be a kind of a, a harmless gent, really, that he manages to get by and, and you know, ends up in this uh, in the arms of Eve Rand and then in the into the to the big mansion that he ends up staying in for most of the film. And then, you know. The, the various ridiculous steps that take him to meeting the president and getting on a chat show, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, if Chance had been a, for example, a black woman, he would not that that situation would not have happened, and it would have gone in a very different direction, I think. And what we hit upon there is that one of the problems that is prevalent in the representation of autism, in particular, which mm. is it tends to be these male white quite comfortable characters who were quirky and funny and weird and we can kind of cope with them a little bit and then they're, they're not too much of a handful and i think well that's probably by virtue of their privilege that they have in that situation and it's also meant that you know 
particularly with Rain Man and, and other films, it's meant that there's been this sort of assumption that really autism is a, is, is a condition which mostly only affects men and mostly only uh, is a, mostly only affects like white middle class men, which of course is nonsense because it doesn't uh, it doesn't discriminate in that in that sense. But yeah, it does sort of see, uh, you know, his kind of pleasure and, and contentment, I think, in, that, in those opening sequences when he was moving his plants around and watching the television. Something that I thought I would mention, uh, I don't know if these stats are different in the UK compared to Australia, but in Australia, four times as many boys as girls are diagnosed as being autistic. Uh, some of the research or whatever is saying that's because, you know, girls are better at, you know, masking it, I guess, or adapting to it or so on. But um, I know it's actually pretty equal, um, the neurodiversity between genders, but in terms of diagnosis of it, it is the uh, boys, I guess, who exhibit the signs or do get diagnosed more often. So I'm not surprised there's more representations of it with men or with boys. Probably not ideal, but I'm not surprised about it either. Yeah, you're absolutely right about that case. And and I think that's still the same here in the UK, although I think that um, that ratio is narrowing ever more as the years go by. And it's always been the case ever since autism was first given its diagnostic name, which was back in the, in the 1940s. There's long, long been this sort of assumption that it affects more, more males than females. And actually, the science and the diagnostic history seems to support that. But there is a lot of work going on at the moment um, to investigate exactly how autism re- uh, presents itself in women. Um, and there's, a, there's been a phenomenon in recent years of particularly older adult women um, discovering that they are autistic and, and realizing that they are autistic and getting a kind of what we call a late diagnosis, uh, adult diagnosis. And that's happening more and more. And I think it's becoming clear that, yeah, uh, autism presents itself differently or Autistic women, yeah, learn by virtue of the fact that they are women, have to quickly learn how to mask more than men. And it's kind of men are, uh, it's almost as if it's more acceptable for men to be eccentric than it is for women to be eccentric in a way. And I think that's kind of one of the things that is reflected in films like Being There and Forrest Gump and Rain Man is that... Yeah, it sort of reflects that diagnostic history, but also reflects that uh, sort of men can get away with being quirky like this, um, rather, whereas women get a bit more scrutiny. It's interesting to hear that from you, Sol, that, uh, that I think that message of, of women being um, misdiagnosed or being missed is, is getting more and more prevalent um, and is spreading further and further, uh, which is really interesting. Um, yeah, and I also wanted to pick up, Sol, on what you said earlier about the the mean-spirited nature of the film. And I think that you're right. I think there is a mean-spirited feel in some ways towards Chance. And, you know, he is clearly being constructed as this strange, unusual character. To tell you who he, he reminded me of, and this might be a reference that potentially only Tom knows. I don't know how far this particular reference has traveled um, beyond the UK. There's a character uh, in the UK called Mr. Bean, who um, was a sort of yeah. TV comedy character. Yeah. Yeah, you're familiar yeah, with him? Oh, he, he, he's quite big, at least in Europe. Okay, right. All right. in Australia, very big. Oh, is he really? It's, it, always, yeah. it always surprises me how massive Mr. Bean became. But um, <laughs> Sorry, say it again, Tom. He's international, apparently. He's international, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, a chance... Um, it really reminds me of Mr. Bean, actually. Uh, part, uh, partly because they sort of look similar. Like, like Mr. Bean often wears a kind of 
a suit or he's always trying to look smart. Chance is always very smart or he's very, very well turned out. Um, Mr. Bean is from a, a kind of lower class than Chance, um, but always tries to have this kind of smart appearance. And he kind of bumbles around doing all these amusing things and getting into all these troubles and hijinks. Um, I mean, I used to, I used to really love Mr. Bean growing up. It was always on. I always used to watch it all the time. I thought it was hilarious. I mean, looking back at it, it's maybe a bit problematic because he's this kind of quirky, like quote unquote weird guy that like, Everyone, other people sort of treat with a bit of contempt in a way, which doesn't make for quite, maybe quite a mean-spirited and sort of voyeuristic atmosphere at times, possibly. It's a really interesting comparison with Mr. Bean. I didn't even think about that because I guess Mr. Bean has always been kind of like a nasty character also, like he does things to upset other people, whereas Chance is sort of more, you know, harmonious. But in terms of the mean-spiritedness... I'm just thinking of, you know, particularly the two scenes that really get to me are the one where um, Shirley MacLaine tries to seduce him and ends up, you know, pleasuring herself while he's off doing something else in the bed. And also the scene where this anonymous gay person tries to pick him up at this uh, party that he attends. And just those scenes, watching him, thinking about, or imagine if we actually had a real neurodiverse person in that role, I think I'd be in an incredibly uncomfortable position to put them in, and I couldn't really reconcile the um, necessariness. It's not a good word. I couldn't really reconcile um, whether those scenes are actually really needed in the plot, or whether they're just there to be funny, or to be, or to make fun of the fact that he isn't aware of what sex is, or isn't aware that people want to get in his pants, or whatever the case might be. It's actually also really common to find that uh, autistic characters are presented as asexual. And again, we see this in Rain, both Rain Man and Forrest Gump, actually, as well. There's some quite uncomfortable scenes in Forrest Gump uh, where he's, um, you know, he, he's supposed to be having sex or, or is being seduced by women that, that he sort of seems confused by. And yeah, you're right. I think that, that those two scenes in particular are the most uncomfortable scenes and the ones that are just most offbeat for this particular film as well. And I, it was a shame, really, because I thought that the, the relationship with uh, Eve, played by Shirley MacLaine, was developing in a way in which was quite seemingly quite nice. And like I was almost buying into the fact that she was falling for him, even though it's that itself was is quite ridiculous in some ways. But once we got to that point where she starts to really try to seduce him and then she ends up masturbating on the floor while he's doing a, a comical yoga position on the bed, yeah, that was particularly uncomfortable. And it, and it, and it sort of um, perpetuates this idea of asexuality for uh, autistic or indeed people who have intellectual disabilities, which is completely wrong and completely nonsense and, and very harmful and damaging and dehumanizing. And I thought that was a real, yeah, those moments, that was a real off moment. It's interesting. I was doing a little bit, bit of research into the film and um, the the role of uh, Ben Rand, who is played by uh, Melvin Douglas, who actually, uh, Melvin Douglas won an, won an Oscar for this for this performance, which I thought was quite a surprise because I didn't think he was all that good. But anyway, um, that role was offered to Laurence Olivier and Laurence Olivier read the script and he read that masturbation scene and he said, no, I'm not doing it. I don't want to do it because of that masturbation scene. So <laughs> fair, fair play to Laurence Olivier. <laughs> he saw something nobody else did. That doesn't surprise me at all. And I agree that that scene is perhaps one of the most problematic moments in the film. But apart from those moments, um, I do feel that 
most of the film is poking fun at the elite, the upper classes, rather than chance. Um, as Chris mentioned earlier, people interpret his statements as metaphors, and that's not down to any fault of chance. It's the people he's interacting with. And his few words are taken to be profound because I suppose his answers are so un- unexpected and people are looking for a deeper meaning in something that isn't necessarily there. And I do think that he's a, a fascinating character. He's such an endearing person uh, from very early on in the film. There's that connection there. You are rooting for chance. And I think when he first leaves the house, although some people may see it as a opportunity for the comedy to start, I, for one, was concerned. I was wondering, how is he going to cope? How is he going to survive in the world? And I thought it was an excellent touch by um, Ashby to use the same music that is used in 2001 as uh, Chance leaves the house. I'm wondering if that had the same comedic connection for you, David, or whether you felt that that was a bit out of place. What are your thoughts on the use of that music? Yeah, at first when that music came on, I was like, oh, this is delightful. What a, what a, what a surprise, because it's kind of a sort of, sort of funky jazz disco version of the Also Sprach Zarathustra music from 2001, which is that da, 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 ba, ba. Um, <laughs> I'm uh, glad you gave us a little, uh, little, yeah, a little rendition, that. just in case. Yeah. That, <laughs> that one, the famous one from 2001. Um, and I, I was sort of the same as you, Tom, that like, yeah, once he emerges, I actually was from the house and starts walking through the street and he's wearing his suit and he's very neat and he's carrying his case and he's got his little bowler hat on etc and I thought oh no here goes a, a, a kind of naive person who doesn't know how to look after himself out into the big wider world and is going to really struggle actually I thought something bad was going to happen to him and so for me that that music kind of didn't didn't convey that really and actually in the end the only bad thing that happens to him is he gets accidentally knocked into by a limousine. Well, he gets sort of threatened by a street gang, but that doesn't seem to affect him particularly very much. And then he gets knocked into by Eve's limousine and hurts his leg. So he ends up not really getting into too much of a a tricky situation. Um, But one of the things that that piece of music, that choice of music does is it kind of turns in a way turns chance into this kind of alien figure. Um, this is one of the things that I've been particularly interested in. As I mentioned earlier on, I, I, my research has, has mostly focused on um, science fiction and how science fiction and, and fantasy, to a, to a certain extent, how they interact with uh, autistic ways of being. And it's a fascinating rabbit hole that I won't dive too far down into, but it is worth saying that it's quite common to find autistic characters being kind of associated with with sci-fi and with, particularly with being an alien or with being an other, being a kind of uh, fantastical, uh, almost like a fantastical creature from another world in a way. I, and actually, it's mentioning Mr. Bean earlier on. Mr. Bean's a similar one because Mr. Bean, the, the, the idea around Mr. Bean that he's, he is an alien or an angel that has been sent down from from somewhere. Um, so for me, this, this moment where you sort of invoke 2001 uh, Space Odyssey almost gives him a bit of a kind of otherworldly uh, uh, existence, really. And then later on, he is um, 
he he finds himself in front of a a window uh, which has got a a big TV screen in it, which look, must have looked extremely modern back in those days because it's like a, a a video camera that's set up that's pointing at the street, and that camera is feeding to a screen which shows what happens on the street. So anyone who walks past can see themselves on the screen. And Chance is fascinated by this because he loves television. He carries a remote control around with him everywhere. Um, he's always. Uh, wanting to be in front of a TV screen. And he's now seeing himself on this screen. But what's interesting about that moment is that in the background of that screen, there is a kind of moon set. Um, So it sort of makes him look as if he's almost playing around on a screen on the moon in a way. And it's very, it's quite, I I thought it was quite a remarkable shot, quite a remarkable construction, but it also gives him that kind of otherworldliness. And of course, the, one of the things about Chance is that um, later on, various people try and figure out who he is and what his background is. Various secret service agents and journalists and so on are trying to find out, you know, get the background on him. Um, and nobody can find anything about him. There's no record of him anywhere. Um, and actually, we as viewers never really find out much about his background either. He remains this kind of enigma character. So in a way, that all that all contributes to the construction of him as this kind of otherworldly figure, which is problematic because if you start to project autistic and neurodivergent people as being alien and otherworldly, it's not too far of a step then to sort of say that they're effectively not human and not, you know, not a normal part of the human race necessarily. And that can lead to, you know, very problematic areas. Really interesting uh, take for sure, uh, David. I actually had the opposite uh, reaction to that uh, scene when he steps out of his uh, home for the first time and uh, the music from 2001 is worked into uh, this, this very different rhythm, but it's still so recognizable. And that is that the world is alien rather than him. I mean, I guess the end result might be very much the same, that he is different from the rest. But I think that, at least in terms of how the movie shoots it, the world is what's strange. And the world is what's alien uh, in a lot of ways. And I think it is especially interesting here that, you know, given that the film ends up dwelling in so much wealth and power and talking about what you brought up earlier uh, about how autistic representation is often done with people from you know the mid- upper middle class uh, upper middle class uh, or the uh, ruling class etc people with a lot of wealth the film actually has some commentary there as well which, which i thought was interesting it kind of undercuts that point or rather uh, makes it part of its own point when chance walks out into the streets and you see you know complete poverty this streets around his you know lovely home has uh, turned into a fairly poor neighborhood he walks past several people who are quite likely homeless picking up trash from the streets etc and it's it's also largely a black neighborhood and i think there's two comments actually throughout so almost everyone chance interact with later in the film are white upper class people uh, and this is the milieu that almost cr- uh, crowns him as their messiah of sorts but you have this scene early on where he's walking through this black neighborhood and you see this line written on the wall which i didn't pick up the first time i saw it but i picked it up now i, I don't remember ex- the exact phrasing but i think it was that essentially what's wrong with the u.s is that the white man has a god complex and uh, given that big line written on the wall when he walks past in the, in the opening and how the film ends, which I'm not sure we want to spoil yet. 
that that seems quite remarkable. And then you also have this one cutaway when he's um, actually not not just seeing himself in television in in the store window, but he's actually brought in, like you mentioned earlier, to a talk show set and is treated very seriously. And you know he gains all of this reputability and fame. Uh, his old maid, uh, who is a black woman, watches and she comments literally on how uh, it's so easy for white people and you know how this this uh, chance doesn't actually have any of this relevant background some of what she said could be interpreted to be very mean about him and his abilities as well but essentially points out that if you're white everything can go well for you no matter what so so I, I think it's really interesting that the film that focuses so much on privilege does cut that in and it does make me think that the film in terms of being a satire may very easily be mainly focused on making the rich and powerful look uh, silly and vacuous. Um, that uh, what they say is mainly, uh, you know, they don't actually speak to people's concerns or what they speak is, uh, the metaphors are silly. They are so silly that, you know, no matter what you say, anything can be interpreted as uh, powerful and as insightful. And that's the stage, the media and this, this group of people are, are in right now. Um, that, that is perhaps a very powerful point and a very poignant point, but I also think that going back to mean-spiritedness, uh, that does kind of... Like, it depends how you see chance, but... Like, be it that he's just an innocent who is uh, mistaken into all of this, but it, it, it does... If it is the point of this film that the ruling class is vacuous and stupid and greedy, etc., there's a way to read that as still relatively nice to Chance, uh, in the sense that he is just earnest and what he's saying is being uh, understood as grand. Or it is saying that the, this ruling class is so stupid that they, you know, uh, cite this person as their potential leader uh, with, you know, this kind of underlying message that's Chance. Is a problem in himself, portraying him as the idiot, if you will, uh, and and that, like you said, mentioned earlier, uh, that can be quite, quite problematic and mean spirited just in itself. That he is this character that's used to show their their idiocy, which reflects back on him. Uh, so so that's why I have a really complicated relationship with the film. But I think it at least tries to make some quite poignant points. There's a couple of things that you've mentioned, Chris, which I wouldn't mind commenting on. One of them is the uh, scene with the maid watching on TV. And I think in terms of basic humour, that's one of the uh, better scenes because the humour is coming from her reaction to what's on TV rather than, you know, chance, you know, not understanding that a gay person wants to have sex with him. So I think, you know, that's one of the better humorous scenes. But then what she says to describe him, she says he's got rice pudding between his ears. You know, it's just one of those things where it's just like another, like, nasty comment that you don't really need to have in there. And in terms of whether the film is about the ruling class being stupid or not, I mean, I guess, you know, maybe that's a general picture, but then you've got, like, Ben, the character played by Melvin Douglas. He is an awesome character. He's such a great human being with such, like, a realistic look and outlook on life and death. I think it's really, I don't know, misguided. I don't know. It just seems a bit wrong to me to try and, like, paint him as being stupid. And yet he's the one who misinterprets the most of what Chance says or reads into it most um, beyond what he's saying, like things like the room upstairs and whatever. But I think with the whole, like, satire for me, it doesn't quite work for me because a lot of it's so coincident-based. Like, he has to sneeze right at that time where he tells um, Eve his name um, they, he happens to live upstairs, so he's able to talk about that room upstairs. 
the films just build on a lot of things and the things that the characters read into it about the garden and everything is just like such an extreme and I guess I'd say kind of ridiculous interpretation that I don't really see it as particularly credible. So I guess from my point of view, the way I'm coming at it, it's sort of like, you know, it's all about it being really funny that this stuff which he's saying can be misinterpreted, even though in no realistic situation would this be interpreted. In no realistic situation or any would nobody else other than the maid pick up on the fact that he is on the spectrum or he's neurodiverse. So there's just a whole lot of um I guess lack of realism in there, which I guess is never the ultimate be all to end all with a film. But if a film's trying to say some really, you know, important points about, you know, society and, you know, I guess the way the uh, ruling classes work or whatever, I guess to me or whatever, I prefer a little bit more realism rather than ridiculousness in there. Yeah, well, I would agree with a lot of what you're saying there, Sol, definitely. And um, he's sort of this kind of wise idiot character in a way, so that the way they sort of they kind of pitch him and, and cast him. And I think you're, you're right that a lot of the satire does rely upon these kind of coincidental moments and this de- almost deliberate misinterpretation of the things that he's saying. And sometimes that feels like it works and at other times it goes to lengths that are too ridiculous. And actually, I, I did catch myself often thinking, you know, if this was a real life uh, he, situation, if this character was kind of a real person, he wouldn't get this far. And they, <clears throat> in reality, people who are autistic or who have learning difficulties of some kind are, are seen as a problem and are seen as disordered. And that, and that is recognized very quickly. And people get very uncomfortable around ca- people like this. And <clears throat> their assumptions are that this person should be locked away somewhere or should be in an institution or an asylum and that's the realistic situation for uh people who are neurodivergent and particularly autistic people so it it feels like this um kind of i don't know sort of uh, mythical idea that 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 a character like this would not get instantaneously recognized and sort of placed into uh institution but one of the things i wanted to pick up on that uh you were saying Chris earlier about when he's wandering around and he's passing kind of the the homeless uh, population uh, near to where he lives and so on. I think that's a really good insight, actually. And I think that, um, yeah, the the use of the 2001 music to suggest that the world is uh, the strange place, the the the, the other the, the the kind of alien planet in a way, is uh, an interesting way of seeing it. And I would definitely agree with some of that. And there is at that point as well quite a remarkable shot where uh, Chance is walking up the central reserve of a dual carriageway. Um, it's a really interesting shot because in the background is the Capitol Dome and he's sort of walking very gradually up towards this dome. And there's, I think there's a real pointed construction being made there in that in that image about the relationship between the powerful and the kind of common man in a way. And one of the things that made me think about was looking at this from a, a point of view of autism is that it made me think well this maybe could be seen as a reflection on how society ignores t- certain people in its in its community and how it sort of prefers to shut away the neurodivergent and the autistic and prefers them to be behind closed doors and away from polite society and of course later no one will recognize chance as uh, a neurodivergent figure because they're more interested in him fitting into their kind of neurotypical elitist world. 
And so taken in that way, we could perhaps see the film as a kind of reflection on, yeah, how autistic and neuro neurodivergent people historically and to some extent in the present day are pushed aside and uh, there's a kind of blind spot in the, in our um uh, society where where the, these people exist and therefore it's it's kind of tragic then that uh, when one of them tries to become part of society it's uh, it's handled in a way that's uncomfortable or is uh, satirical or is uh, unrealistic and is yeah and I, I think it's just maybe quite an interesting reflection on how we sort of tend to to, to package away or ignore these types of people in our society and still do in many ways. I'd just like to link back into what uh, Sol was saying about the coincidental humour. And I just want to explore how chance uh, rises so far in public esteem, uh, mainly due to uh, Ben's endorsement of him. Because Ben absolutely adores chance from the moment he arrives on the scene. He sees him as, you know, this refreshing person with a unique perspective on life. And I think that... For instance, when a chance is introduced to the president, the president is uncertain of him, but he doesn't want to um, raise any questions or doubts because Ben is in such high esteem. He doesn't want to embarrass him, and and he comes on. The president comes on board and supports Chance, and I think that's quite a, a powerful moment in the film because it's basically saying that success isn't what you know. It's who you know, because we're well aware that Chance has come from this background where he doesn't have a education, no experience in business or, or politics. He, he can't read or write, yet he's, he's given this platform because as of what we've all mentioned uh, earlier on, his appearance, his, his politeness, he comes across so well. And I think that's a, a very powerful moment in the film that really shapes uh, where he goes to. Uh, towards the end of the film as well yeah I'd, I'd absolutely agree with that tom i think you're right I, I think that's probably one of the neatest things about the film is that it shows the that uh in these elite uh halls of power it is who you know and who you can sort of get uh friendly with who can very quickly advance your position uh and it does so with with chance in ways that are I, I, well, I think one of the things that's fascinating about the film is it's, it's in ways that are kind of ridiculous, but almost, almost believable. Like it, the way in which it's handled is like, yeah, I can, I, I can see how somebody like Ben thinks that that Chance is is a wonderful uh, and wise and uh, refreshing figure because he's probably surrounded constantly by people who were just lying to him or using empty rhetoric or using um who, who are i mean there is a, i think there is something in the we'll get to the ending in a bit I, I suppose but there is something in the the speech that the president reads at ben's funeral at the end which is about ben talking about how he's he's always been surrounded by people who are who are, who are a bit false around him and so then in walks chance who doesn't have any falseness at all and is just very happy and content and as long as he's got a television and he's able to sort of um, make his way through uh, conversation in the way that he's kind of helped along with 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 conversations then he yeah he suddenly does prevent present this quite refreshing 
figure for Ben, who is all the way through the film is on the verge of dying. He's very ill and is, and is having to have blood transfusions and all sorts of things. And always comes in as this sort of ray of light for his life, which is quite nice, really, and kind of kind of uplifting in a way. And Chance also has a, a similar re- relationship with Eve, who clearly has. So Eve is um, Eve is Ben's wife, but she starts to fall for Chance, and Ben recognizes this, and he sort of gives her his blessing for her to continue on with it, you know, to sort of pursue a, a, a relationship with with Chance. And so in a way that's nice that, that, that there's there's an element of this which is like, okay, neurodivergent people, autistic people can factor into people's lives because they can be refreshingly different to the normal in a way and that that can be of benefit and can be a, an element towards friendship and towards genuine affection. And so there is a way in which you can sort of spin all of this and sort of think, yeah, that that's quite nice. But of course... Behind all of this is the privilege of the fact that Chance presents in the way that he does, very smartly dressed, very well-spoken, very inoffensive, very pure, innocent, um, which again is another classic stereotypical trope of the autistic figure of this person who is pure and innocent and and has and is generally just simple-minded and just likes the simple things in life, which again is not a not necessarily an accurate reflection of how autistic people are in real life, of course. But nevertheless, there is what we would call, um, what I would call in the, in my fancy academic world as a cross-neurotype collaboration or cross-neurotype friendship in here, which is quite a valuable thing to do. And I think, again, about, about Rain Man, and one of the things that happens in Rain Man constantly, if people are familiar with that film, it's, you know, Tom Cruise playing uh, Tom Cruise plays a character called Charlie and Rain Man or Raymond played by Dustin Hoffman is his autistic brother and constantly all the way through that film Charlie is just so angry at Raymond all the time and it's kind of disheartening and dispiriting to watch he does come around to him towards the end and that's the whole point of that film but um it's hard it's hard to watch these two brothers not getting on really whereas in here you've got friendship which is quite which is quite important I think I think that's a lovely sentiment, but the one thing that kind of broke that down for for me is that it's not the case that uh, these characters are having a straightforward conversation with each other where, you know, they're learning from each other and taking what they're they're saying on board. Both sides are misunderstanding essentially every single thing said to to the other, and that is the basis of the comedy or satire, etc., and essentially every single interaction throughout. Sean is all, for instance, he's, he's genuinely just speaking about a room upstairs, where he's genuinely not, he's, he's not necessarily, he's clear that he doesn't understand the questions he's being asked. So it's not just that the neurotypical people uh, misunderstand him and read things into what he's saying, he's misunderstanding them at every point as well. And th- some of that is valuable. That's something that obviously can be quite real uh, as well. But I'm not sure friendship can really be built on neither character understanding anything the other person said. If it was these people sharing their perspective in some way, or Sean's actually understanding what they were saying and using the garden as an actual allegory to what just bringing it to something simple that he understands then i think the film would have a slightly different meaning but that's not the case at all he is genuinely just thinking about the garden he's not really responding to what they're saying or at least that's my interpretation so that's where i kind of feel like these friendships and the romances uh, wither out a little bit within this film 
Yeah, no, I, I think you're absolutely right there, definitely. I think that's, uh, yeah, the, the, the friendships, so to speak, friendships on all of the sides are, are, are very one-directional in many ways, although it, it clearly is meaningful for chance as well. One of the the moments I, I quite appreciated and quite liked was the moment when we get to Ben's death and Chance is there with Ben when he dies. And you get this reverse shot of Chance looking down and he's got tears in his eyes and he's, he's kind of mourning the, the passing of this person who has become his friend. And I thought that was a good thing and an important thing as well. Because again, one of the one of the um, misconceptions about autistic people is this um, this very insidious uh, theory and idea that, that autistic people lack empathy or don't have empathy or are not empathetic which is a long-standing and very problematic myth around autism that has been, in some respects, kind of backed up by scientific research, which is now being uh, completely debunked and completely overwritten. But um, this idea that, the, yeah, the autistic people don't feel empathy or, don't, or lack the ability to, to feel empathy is, is nonsense. And it was nice to see that moment, actually, when Chance is moved to tears by the, by the death of Ben, which was, which was good. But you're right as well that the, the, the friendship relationship between these people um, is built upon misunderstanding and miscommunication is probably therefore unsustainable and is also directed almost entirely towards the neurotypicals. One of the things I wanted to mention again, which is something that is common to autism films and autistic characters, um, and actually more widely to films about disability, is this um, this theory that is that is uh, often talked about within disability studies, which is called uh, narrative prosthesis, which is this idea that a disabled figure, a disabled character. Um, in a film or in a book, or whatever it is, only really exists in that narrative in order to be a kind of a prop or a prosthesis for the neurotypical characters. And, and again, Rain Man's a very good example of this because really the only reason why uh, Raymond, the autistic character in Rain Man, exists is to be a, a kind of moral, to, to sort of help Tom Cruise's character Charlie to understand how to be a better person in the world, and as soon as as soon as Charlie has understood that, he's uh, you know Raymond has served his purpose and he's packed back into the uh, into the institution again at the end. And so you know there's this, this idea of narrative prosthesis, which is the kind of very common position that disabled figures occupy in films and in and in literature. And I think we see that here as well. Really, the kind of the only reason that. But chance sort of exists is to be this this prop for these various realizations of these uh, these these neurotypical characters. Although here that is done in a way that is bit is far more satirical. I was going to jump in on Rain Man because I know it keeps getting bagged in this podcast, but I think what you said, David, does pretty much cover my feelings for it. But I guess in a slightly more positive way. I mean, the first time I saw Rain Man, I wasn't too big on it, but the second, third time I watched it. I started to see it more about as being about Tom Cruise's character rather than Dustin Hoffman's character. And I know that's not great in terms of representation, and we do want more positive representation of people on the autism spectrum in film, but I don't think the story was ever the story about the Dustin Hoffman character in so much as I think he's more of a supporting character in the tale. And therefore, I guess, yeah, it is more about the neurotypical brother learning to you know cope whatever live with the fact that he's got an autistic brother so yeah i don't know look i'm not 
as negative on the film as I was on recent rewatch, but that's just because I guess I really like the um, whole character arc that the Tom Cruise character goes through. I mean, yes, it does mean that an autistic person is used as a prop, and that's not great, but I guess, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, like you said, like the history of autism in film, there isn't a lot of it where it's um, specifically mentioned or whatever. A lot of it is films like Being There or films like Forrest Gump or films like The Infinite Man, which is this awesome Australian um, sci-fi comedy with an autistic character, but it's never mentioned. So it's stuff like that where it never actually gets specifically mentioned. Just to quickly jump on that, actually, so I think it's a really interesting phenomenon, this, but um, yeah, the the sort of the word autism being kind of avoided by um, particular films that have clearly have autistic characters in them. You see this time and time again. There's a film, actually, it's just sitting here on my desk at the moment because I was uh, writing about it recently. It's a film called uh, Please Stand By, which came about, um, not so long ago, a few years ago, starring Dakota Fanning as an autistic woman. I mean, it's a mixed bag of a film in many ways. But one of the things about that film is that she's clearly autistic and at no point does any character in the whole film say the, the A word. Like There's this real avoidance of saying the A word or even on the spectrum or Asperger's or any of the kind of other euphemisms that you often get for autism. Um, and it's a curious phenomenon. It's like the word autism is a kind of taboo that, that must not be spoken or it must be sort of danced around a little bit. And again, that's one of the things that a lot of autistic activists are trying to um, fight against, really, because they want, you know, a lot of people are saying that you know, autism is a very fundamental part of an individual, who an individual is, and, and therefore it's part, part and parcel of their identity and they're proud of it very much so. And, uh, and therefore we shouldn't really dance around the issue with autism. We should be out and proud about it and, um, you know, own it a little bit. Um, so it's a curious phenomenon. We often see that happening. It is kind of interesting with yeah, autism that's not often spoke about. It's more coded, I guess, like homosexuality was coded in a lot of early films, not explicitly mentioned. But in terms of autism representations, I think one of the uh, big hindering blocks, and I've not seen the film, but uh, Sears Film Music and a lot of the controversy on yeah. casting somebody who's not a neurodivergent in a neurodivergent role caused a lot of controversy so i don't know do you do you see it as problematic when people who aren't on the spectrum play act play characters who are on the spectrum because that's obviously going to impede a little bit films being made if we are in a position where we're insisting that autistic people must be playing autistic characters so i'm just interested in your take on that and whether you think that's a necessity in order to get um better representation of, of autism on film? Really interesting question, that, Sol. Really interesting question. It's a question that we come across a lot during the Autism 3 uh, Cinema podcast, and it's something we've considered a lot as well. It's a fascinating one, really, because, um, yeah, the, the, Sia, the, the, the film by the musician Sia, which is called Music, which came out uh, last year or the year before, very recent, caused an awful lot of controversy because um, I haven't seen it. I've seen clips of it, but I've, I've actually sort of deliberately not watched it, although we did cover it in our podcast and one of our regular hosts um, sat down and watched it and hated it. Um, and that film is, uh, it, it's the, the, the main problem with Sia's music is that the, um, the character of music, yeah, she was played by a non-autistic actor and was also, it was also seen to be a, a massive caricature of autism. And there were lots of problematic scenes in that. There's one scene where um, uh, music is having a, a meltdown in the middle of a park and 
uh, one of the other characters basically just like sits on her and 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 stops her from having this meltdown. And that is really bad practice. That is really not how you're supposed to deal with situations like that. And it can be very, very dangerous. So that was a, a very messy, very problematic film in many ways. But as to the question is, should just autistic characters play autistic actors? I mean, this is a, a question that is asked of like, disabled characters more broadly anyway in, in film and is still a very big problem and is, is still an issue in terms of representation. For me, I, I'm in, I don't know, I think find it interesting. I do think that there is room for non-autistic actors to play autistic characters because I think it has been done and it has been done quite well in some respects and I might mention a couple of examples at some point. But yes, there is an increased need definitely for autistic actors to be present and be playing autistic characters and I think that results in probably a more interesting and more honest film. There's a film called Keep the Change which we've covered on our podcast um, where they make the deliberate choice to cast non-professional autistic actors in that film playing autistic characters and it's refreshing to watch, it's really refreshing to watch and uh, and also the, but, but yeah one of the things as you say Solly, you know that it does seem like there are quite few autistic actors out there, although I will make a bit of a prediction here and I think that more and more will start to emerge and more and more um, actors out there will start to say that they're autistic and we're seeing this happen more and more often, more and more um, figures in, in celebrities and so on are coming out as autistic in a way. And there are a handful. Um, Anthony Hopkins is autistic and people often don't know this, um, but he's uh, 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 he's has a, a kind of diagnosis of Asperger's, but that is, you know, a form of autism. And uh, so he's uh, kind of been quite out and honest about this. And of course, Hopkins has had a, a history of of playing neurodivergent characters. I suppose if you could say that in terms of Hannibal Lecter, I don't know. But um, uh, yeah, so, you know, maybe there's a potential there for Anthony Hopkins to, to do a, a wonderful performance as, as autism at some point. There's also Paddy Considine, the uh, the British actor. He's also autistic. So, and um, what's her name from? Oh, I've just forgotten her name. And <laughs> she's from Blade Runner. Who plays Pris in Blade Runner? Um, Daryl Hannah. Yeah, Daryl Hannah. That's it. Okay, so yeah, um, and Daryl Hannah as well is autistic. So there are a few, and I think there will be some more. And I think it will be interesting. Therefore, if at some point somebody you know, writes a film about autism and, and actually casts an autistic actor. I think that will be an important milestone. But yeah, really interesting question, Sol, and one that's very complex. And actually there's, sorry, I keep thinking of other things, but there's, an, there's another thing to say about this. One of the films we covered in the podcast was uh, the film Good Time by the Safdie Brothers, which, figure, which features a, a character in there who is, again, not, you know, not diagnosed as autistic on screen, but seems to have autistic traits. And was played by a, a non-autistic actor. Was actually one of the one of the one of the directors. And there was an interesting debate around that film because the Safdie brothers said that they wanted to cast an actually a, a, a neurodivergent actor in that role, but they felt in the end that the filming of that film, which is a very intense action film, would have been too stressful for a, an actor to a neurodivergent actor with learning difficulties to cope with. And actually, so there was a kind of there was an element there of them being careful um, and being gentle around what the needs of that. Now we could argue, of course, that yeah, we should be making film sets more accessible, and and you know, who are we to to suggest that? Maybe 
you know, we can find neurodivergent actors who can cope with these situations. But in another sense, you know, if you don't want Robert, if you don't want to have a, a, a film where a film s filming situation where Robert Patterson is screaming in your face and that would be very, very stressful for an actor, then fair enough in a, in a way. So, yeah, there's complications and nuances to that, I think. I wonder if you should talk about the ending of, of this film, of being there, because it's quite an interesting and unusual ending. And I'm interested to hear what other people think about it. Just to play, so just to sort of explain what happens in the courses is a, a bit of a spoiler, but um, spoiler warning. At the end, Chance and Eve are at the funeral of Ben, who has died, and he uh, he sort of wanders away from from the funeral proceedings as the president is reading this speech about uh, about Ben, and he sort of wanders kind of quite happily through the woods, and then he ends up next to a lake. And you can see the mansion in the background. And then suddenly he just starts walking out into the lake. Um, and he ends up walking on the surface of the water. And it's really interesting and unusual, I think. And I'm interested to see what people's take on that, that moment was. First time around, David, I didn't actually think that much of the ending. I wasn't taken with it. But on second viewing, I really appreciated what, Ashby did with the uh, ending there. Now I want to just go back over the film and discuss some of the uh, religious symbolism that, that's present throughout and I think it's quite ironic in a way because here I am searching for metaphors and meaning in the film just like the neurotypicals are searching for meaning in Chance's dialogue and I wonder whether that's intentional by Ashby um, but one of the meanings that I read about, which I think is a bit of a stretch, but I, I'd, I'd just like to go over it, is that chance is basically a metaphor for Adam, who's cast out of the Garden of Eden. And this actually makes sense and validates the scene that we all found the most awkward, which is where chance is tempted by Eve, but he resists. And because of that, he gains his divinity. And that is why he's able to walk on water at the end of the film. And I do like that interpretation, but I have my own slightly different religious interpretation, which kind of links back into Chance and Ben and, and their friendship. And this fact that Ben basically gives the world chance. If it wasn't for Ben, the world wouldn't have experienced chance or he wouldn't have had this reputation and fame. So I have this interpretation that is also kind of matched by the end when um, Ben dies and he's carried away to his grave. And we see on the top of it, there's the Eye of Providence, the, the Freemasons symbol. Um, but it's also a symbol of the divine eye and God this interpretation that Ben could be seen as God and he's given chance to the world, who's Jesus. And this is kind of cemented by the fact that he performs a, a miracle at the end. He's, he's viewed as some kind of saviour, even by the people who are carrying uh, Ben to his grave. They're talking about chance being someone that they're going to look to in the future and can potentially save the business and perhaps even save the political party because he could be a good candidate for president. So I think there's quite a few tenuous links there, 
but I always like trying to unpack the films and interpret different meanings. So I'll be interested to see if anyone else agrees with me or disagrees or, or what you think on those perspectives. Yeah, there's a lot of um, religious symbolism in being there and definitely with um, Ben's wife being called Eve and so on. So it's definitely there. It's definitely present. The ending myself, um, yeah, look, I've seen it six times now. And I guess it's reached the point where I'm either not worried about figuring it out or if it does figure out anything, I'm just interpreted as being in Chance's mind. I mean, I know he does, like, put his umbrella down to just check how deep the water is. And, yes, it is deep and he is walking on it. But I don't really see it as being, you know, part of the film's reality. And then what happens after that? Well, that just completely destroys the film for me. But we could talk about that afterwards. Yeah. Um... Yeah, I think that your interpretation there, Tom, is really fascinating, actually. And the more you think about um, the religious connotations of it, the more it's the more you, you kind of unpacking it is is quite a quite a fun exercise. Like to maybe think of his garden at the beginning as the kind of Garden of Eden in a way, or just his pre- you know his 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 love of being with gardens as is a representative of the Garden of Eden. And I think the more you think about that, the more that becomes clear that that's probably intentional by Ashby and there's there's clear um, religious connotations there. One of the things I did notice is that, that there was some quite, a couple of quite fairly subtle moments where when Chance has a kind of a breakthrough or a Chance has a kind of a, a very positive moment, it seems to sort of unseat the people, the, the kind of authorities that he's relying upon. The president has come to to meet with with Ben and and has ended up talking as well with Chance and the president has been sort of wooed around to Chance's kind of philosophy as he sees it and then Chance um, and sorry the president then is making a speech and uses Chance's garden metaphor in his speech and says you know I met my uh, a good friend of Ben's called Chauncey Gardner and he said this and he gave this speech about this garden etc and it's this massive moment. And what's interesting about that moment is that they're watching that happening on TV. And that at that moment, suddenly, Ben starts coughing and spluttering and um, almost looks like he's about to collapse or, or, or die at that point. And there's a sense, actually, that Chance's sort of uh, elevation towards becoming the president's guru or the president's friend unseats Ben. And then later we get Chance appearing on the chat show and he's got an audience of millions suddenly and he's reaching more people than the president could ever hope to reach. Um, and he's starting to, um, and there's a question that's that's asked that, that Chance answers as a kind of, sounds like it might be a metaphor for thinking about uh, getting rid of the president as if the president was a, a weed that's wilted or is, is is not good for the garden at this point. And that at that point, the president loses his uh, sexual appetite. So we see the president watching him on television and he's got his wife with him. And at that point, he the president gets very troubled and, and can't seem to to perform. So there's this curious sort of, power almost this kind of magical power that that chance has that he doesn't seem to realize that he has that whenever he takes a step further up um in the kind of public imagination uh it sort of unseats the people that come before him so there is a kind of mythical magical aura to him there in terms of how i reacted to the ending i i i didn't know about the ending uh, coming into the film which was always nice it's always nice to be surprised um i'm a real sucker for things like this i just think they're wonderful and lovely especially when they come at the end and they're just sort of like so unexpected 
Um, and yeah, you can certainly, as you said, Sol, you could see it as a being completely in Chance's mind because there's no other characters around at that point. Um, it or you could see it as you know a, a fulfillment of Chance as a sort of messianic figure. Thinking of him as an autistic character, of course, as I was mentioning before about the other and the supernatural and being kind of an alien and so on, this is very common when associated with associated with autistic characters. And this only adds to that. He is this pu- pure and beautiful, innocent character uh, who is, by virtue of his disability, is is free and innocent and to the extent that he is actually the Messiah and can walk on water and can do miracles and so on. Um is problematic because that's not realistic uh, in terms of autism. But having said that, I quite liked that moment where he walks out onto the lake. It's handled in a really gentle way. It's not. It's quite a surprise. I love the way he puts the umbrella in and pulls it out. I did have a smile on my face, I must admit, when I was watching that happen. Uh, I thought it was really nice. But yeah, I do agree with you, Sol. It was then ruined by the um, the the bit that comes immediately after that as the titles roll. Uh, but yeah, uh, but Chris, what did you make of the ending? See, I had many uh, similar thoughts to uh, to both of you, and I think uh, just on the topic uh, of uh, the end credits uh, specifically, as you brought it up, uh, Peter Sellers was actually furious uh, when he saw that at the premiere and uh, got it changed. So a lot of later releases does not have that, which I think it's a, a very wise choice because it, it just feels completely out of place. One of the things that I have an issue with uh, with this film, and uh, it's also with the ending, is that the messaging is not really clear or con- or concise. Now that can be really powerful in, in itself. I think there's several elements there that uh, that's exciting because it stops you and you talk about it and you try to investigate it. Like, is he? just walking on shallow water and he's sticking his umbrella down uh, just to see, is it deeper here? Uh, or is it uh, genuinely that he is a magical creature? And I think the film likes to play with that. But but like I mentioned earlier, the, the film is very tonal, it's bars, it's a little bit... The film is, it, the film is not like those uh, cutscenes at the end. The film is fairly quiet, like you mentioned earlier, gentle, melancholic, uh, and then you you have this very po- almost poignant moment when he walks across the water, and there's so much you can read into that, and then, like you say, it just cuts to these gag scenes. It, it feels like it's for a very different film, not just in terms of the impression that it might be mocking the character, but it, it just feels so out of place, and I, I think that is... My main takeaway, not just from the ending, but the whole film, that I like it, it's clear that it's critiquing uh, the ruling class in some way. I mean, literally, uh, Rand is taken into a pyramid uh, with you know Illuminati symbols. I, I, it it it's really uh, it, it gets really over the top in that funeral scene in particular, and you know, Chance is just having this complete rise to you know near absolute power, but. I genuinely don't know how I feel about the ending because I don't know what it's trying to say and I don't know what what the end game is here, what it's saying about chance, what it's saying about uh, society. We, we get that it's critiquing, like I said, uh, the rich and powerful and their, like from my perspective at least, their philosophy of essentially just, I suppose, just power and the fact that what they are saying, the words they're using, are so removed from 
reality in some ways or, or to creating their own reality so that anything Chance does or says can instantly be in, interpreted as powerful. But uh, again, like that ending, what it says about Chance, what it says about his future, what the film is trying to say, it, it feels really up in the air. Uh, so uh, I'm just really conflicted about it. Like, what, what do you think the ending actually means? Yeah, um, that's a good question. What does it actually mean? Um, <laughs> that is a good question. I wonder if it's. I wonder if potentially it's all part and parcel of the the continuation of the satire. You know, what, what's just happening at that point is that the pallbearers who are carrying Ben to the to the yeah to the Illuminati pyramid, which was a strange um, choice, but yeah, it was there, uh, and they are discussing. They they just they they're basically like the kind of the, the they're not quite sort of identified who they are but they're sort of they're like the kingmakers yes yes they the kingmakers they they're powerful the elite and they um, are having this discussion about who the next president should be um, and they're throwing out a few names and then eventually one of them says chance um, and they're like oh yeah that's a great idea because he's great and so then you know it's got to this ultimate point where the satire has got to the point where it's saying and now chance is going to be president i mean it's got that ridiculous that he's gone through mm-hmm. this sequence of, yeah. and it's only been there for like a week or whatever however many days it is and then and so i'm wondering if him walking on water and becoming this messiah is just the next extent of that ridiculousness of that uh, yes. pro- progression mm-hmm. you know they think they've seen this it's a it's another poke at the the rich and the elite and the powerful to say they think this guy is their savior they literally think he's the most wonderful thing on on the planet and so is a perhaps an extension of that but i mean there are various ways in which it could be interpreted i, I guess i did just want to pick up on uh, another thing which actually relates to something that sol mentioned earlier a question that sol asked earlier um about that credit role where where peter sellers uh, so he's um it's from an earlier scene in the film and he's trying to uh, say a particular piece of dialogue and he keeps breaking, he keeps cracking up and keeps laughing and people around him keep laughing. It's a kind of a blooper reel really. Um, and how, yeah, I also read that Sellers was very angry about this being included. He actually even blamed this particular uh, blooper reel scene at the credits. He blamed that for the reason why he didn't get the Oscar that he was nominated for, for this film. But what this interestingly relates to is Peter Sellers as an actor really. Um, and how, Apparently, he for this film, he whilst filming it, embodied Chance all the time on set. Like he kept away from the other actors. He was always in character. He uh, sort of declined interviews and things like that while he was filming this film. He went full method actor on it and went fully into the world of Chance and really became him absolutely and fully. And I don't know how much people know about Peter Sellers' life, but I did a little bit of a, a research on this just to see if anyone had ever associated Peter Sellers with with autism. And yes, of course, lo and behold, there are people on the internet who have gone, oh, Peter Sellers might have been autistic, which is um, a, a common thing that you find for any kind of uh, major figure in our in, in our kind of cultural history who has been in some way unusual. But he was, uh, Peter Sellers was... It was kind of plagued with the depression and and uh, anger and mood swings and all sorts of other things. Apparently, he was quite a, a difficult person to work with in many ways. And a, a part of me wonders whether there might have been some sort of neurodivergence uh, um, happening for Peter Sellers, and wonder therefore whether that's uh, as we were talking about with Sol earlier on uh, in terms of you know casting autistic actors in autistic roles. 
I wonder whether there is some connection there between Peter Sellers as a person and this per- and this character that he ends up performing as. And it was Sellers who who really pushed forward for this film. He he read the original book that this um, film was was uh, based on, and he was very keen to get it made into a film. And he sort of brought Hal Ashby on board as well to do the film. So you know, there's clearly some connection I think that Sellers felt with with this character. Yeah, I mean, he was trying to get it made for. About a decade almost before he That's actually right. got together the funding so it's clear that this was a big passion project for him and something he really felt that he needed to do yeah which is interesting uh, it'd be interesting to know exactly why and what it is about chance as a character that he connected with and maybe there was some kind of kinship there i mean this is speculation we don't know for sure and he might have written about this or someone might know more more, more about this somewhere but from a kind of cursory bit of research on this yeah it does seem as if sellers clearly had some sort of connection there so i might just mention with the gag reel because i did actually alluded to it earlier on after the walking on water the gag reel is really what you know sets the film back a little bit for me and i guess it's open to interpretation a little bit one of my followers on Letterboxd and his review said you know the reason why there's a gag reveal in there is because how ashby wants us to keep laughing like throughout or whatever and wants us to like end you know on a positive note and I keep laughing through it but I guess the way that I interpreted it was sort of I guess similar to Dr. Strangelove and I'm assuming all of us here have seen Dr. Strangelove and like remember the ending and it's got like this iconic scene with Slim Pickens and that should have been the end of the film but instead Kubrick lets Peter Sellers ham it up for five minutes more it goes completely over the top for no other reason then, you know, Kubrick thought like Sellers was like completely hysterical. So my interpretation of it is I'd say how Ashby thought the same thing. So Sellers is just such a funny actor. I just have to include this in there if it doesn't quite fit into the film. So I don't know. Maybe it's me reading in too much. Maybe it's just the fact that I'd only rewatched Doctor Strange Love a couple of months before sitting down and watching being there. But I'm just, just just shaking my head going, oh this is just another director who thinks Sellers is hysterical and just just putting too much of him in there when it doesn't need to actually be in there. Yeah, total idolizing of him. Absolutely. I, I totally agree with that. And I think Sellers probably was very angry because, you know, if he'd been trying to maintain this character of chance all the way through the filming and this maybe was one of the moments where he couldn't do that because he kept breaking into laughter was probably quite embarrassing for him. He was very angry for that reason. It's also worth noting as well, it's quite uncomfortable to watch because the speech that he's giving at that point is this, he's trying to replicate what the um, the, the the kind of black gang leader had said to him. And so it's like a, it's a, I don't know, it's just quite uncomfortable to watch this, this upper class white man trying to emulate a black voice, which I think is, you know, these days would be what looked at as quite problematic. Not, not to mention that he assumes the black uh, doctor automatically yes. would know the Kang. Yeah, it's that kind of street talk kind of vibe, which is, uh, yeah, tricky. And it's interesting to say that, like, that f- scene, which clearly they took pains to to film and for, for Peter Sellers to say, actually doesn't end up in the main film. There's no, he doesn't actually make that speech, I don't think, at any point. He does have a conversation with yeah. the black nurse, but that, that particular part of the speech doesn't actually make the cut in the end, which is quite interesting to see. Maybe they never got it right. Maybe they just kept laughing. <laughs> <laughs> does anyone else have any opinions on the meaning of the film itself and what the overall message of the film was? 
Well, no, then f- fair enough. So, <laughs> so yeah, I, I think we're all equally perplexed. It seems. Yeah, I think we're all stumped. <laughs> I think you're right, Chris. I think it was overly complicated. Well, in a way, that's good. I mean, Saul has seen this movie five, six times already, and I think maybe people just need to keep seeing it and write about it. And I think there is something really good uh, with films that chooses to be not that clear because it forces you to engage more. But yeah, my takeaway is that the film perhaps was a little confused itself as well. But be that as it may, David, it's been an, an absolute delight having uh, you on the show and uh, getting you. your I- insight on being there so b- before you leave us why don't you tell us a little bit more about uh, autism through cinema and just like how what you you guys do uh, compares to what we do here and like was this episode very different from the type of episodes uh, you usually make uh yeah thanks chris um i i suppose um the main difference to pick up on, and it's important to say this, really, I guess, is that um, you know, on the Autism Through Cinema podcast, we we always have autistic people there discussing the film. So, you know, I, I I didn't say this at the beginning, but I don't consider myself to be autistic. I do. My my older sister is autistic, and I feel like I do know quite a lot about autism and about the world of autism. But um, it's very important to say that, of course, it is autistic people who best know about autism and therefore it is uh, their voices which are most valuable in these sort of discussions and we are very careful to make sure that we always have autistic people on the podcast in fact you know two of our regular uh, hosts are autistic we've brought on a few more recently as well um, people like the film journalist Lillian Crawford uh, there's a PhD student called Ethan Lyon um, a video uh, maker called John James Laidlow Georgia Bradburn who's the autistic film critic so and it's you know it's so important to have their input and in and their insight on these on these films but other than that this was a very similar to what we normally do because the autism through cinema podcast is literally we we take a film like we have today and we all watch it and then we all gather and talk about it what's been wonderful about it is really the kind of the breadth and the depth of the various different films that we've taken on as i said earlier on you know we don't we're not just going through the obvious autism films we are picking up on films that have some sort of particular resonance with autism as a way of being. That seems to be our kind of main thrust, really. You know, to take a couple of examples, uh, we recently covered Amelie. We also covered uh, Eraserhead at one point. We did a kind of a David Lynch sort of special in a way. We looked at Eraserhead in one of his um, short films, The Grandmother. Uh, we've looked at Orlando by uh, Sally Potter as a as a kind of a way of looking at kind of queer neurodivergence, which was really interesting. And then we do land upon films which do have autistic characters, like there's the um, the film of Temple Grandin, which is a uh, starring Claire Danes, which is about a, a real life autistic activist called Temple Grandin. And yeah, as I said earlier, we looked at Good Time. We've looked at, uh, oh yeah, all sorts of interesting different types of things. The Gleaners and I by Agnes Varda was a really interesting one. Um, there's a film called The Rider by Chloe Zhao, uh, which was the film that she made before Nomadland. Um, and that again has got a, an autistic character and indeed actually an autistic actor in there, which is really good to see. So, you know, we've, we've, we've traveled around various genres, uh, various time periods, various different types of film, and it's, uh, it's really nice. And I, I think people are reacting to it quite well and are finding it a, a sort of a, a new and, and refreshing way to look at 
cinema and maybe a, a surprising way of looking at certain films that um that we know and love already so yeah we we, we continue to record and and we'll continue to release episodes so if people want to check it out they can do it's on all major podcast platforms and it's just called the autism through cinema podcast um, and i would very much encourage listeners to pop over and have a listen and you can just pick and choose any kind of any of the films that we talked about that you're of particular interest to you I'd also like to just add an endorsement for the Autism Through Cinema podcast. I've listened to a few episodes so far and they are brilliant. It offers a great insight into cinema that I myself have rarely considered up until now. It's certainly been an eye-opener and it's always fascinating to learn about cinema through a slightly different perspective. And I just wanted to ask a, a question to David, which is I'm curious to know what you think would be the most realistic depiction of a neurodivergent person in cinema that you've encountered so far? And perhaps also as an additional question, which would be your favourite depiction of a neurodivergent person that you've seen in cinema so far? Uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's a really interesting question, Tom. Not necessarily very easy to answer because it's 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 quite tricky in some ways but um i think the most accurate i think I, I think actually you have to go to documentary to find the most accurate and i think the one of the films that we we haven't released the episode yet uh, but we did we have watched it and covered it already and recorded it and if i remember rightly we were quite hard on this film actually although it, i do quite like it and i do think it did a, a good job so this is the film the reason i jump which came out um well, it was released in cinemas last year, but um, I think his release date is 2020. Um, this is a documentary which is, focuses on autistic people who are minimally verbal, as we call it, or you know have minimal ability to speak or speak uh, have speech, which is a common trait of of autistic people, which we don't often think about or talk about. But this film, I think, does a really good job—not a perfect job by any stretch, but a decent job of putting real autistic people on screen and allowing their uh, voices to be heard and allowing their opinions to be heard and allowing us to sort of sit with them and live with them for a while. Um, so I think the reason I jump is, is certainly a good step forward in terms of representation of autism and uh, and is also an interesting film to just to watch and to, to know about. As I say, it's not perfect. There are problems with it and we do cover some of those in our discussion, which was, is going to be released soon, but it's worth seeing, definitely. As for my favourite, I do have a favourite, um, and it's I have to step away from cinema here and go to television. My favourite representation of an autistic person in uh, that I've seen on screen, uh, I think anyway, is the character of Arbed from the TV show Community, the comedy TV show Community, which is written by uh, written and produced by Dan Harmon, and was this you know silly knockabout american sitcom that ran for a few years uh, that had uh, six seasons famously and there's a character in there called arbed and i find him kind of fascinating and brilliant i love him because he's this wonderful powerful figure who has this kind of control over the narratives that he's in uh, he has an he has a real agency he's a likable person he's funny but he also has encounters challenges and problems and he what i really like about arbed is that it is part and parcel of the show of community if people are unfamiliar with it is it's a very metatextual and very kind of uh, postmodern take on on all sorts of things and one of the things they do all the time is 
do parodies and pastiches of, of um, famous films and famous TV programs and so on. And Arbed is very central to all of that play, really. And the the program itself, when it's at its best, is really clever and very playful. And Arbed is very much in the in the midst of all of that. And I love him, and I think he's brilliant, and I think he's one of the most refreshing um, uh, representations of an autistic character that we've seen uh, to this point. Um, not perfect by any stretch. There are still problems, and there is a lot of issue around uh, his condition being sort of laughed at quite a lot. He's a butt, butt of the joke quite often. But I also think he's got power. He's got agency like no other autistic character really has. Um, so I would recommend that people check out Community and um, spend some time with Arbed. Thanks for your recommendations, Dave. I have to confess that I've seen neither, but I'll be sure to check them out. I've heard a lot of good things about community, so perhaps your recommendation will be the push I need to give it a shot. Thank you. No problem. Community is an excellent show, and I think Arvid is generally considered to be one of the most popular characters from that show as well. I mean, he's, and then Danny Pudley, the actor who plays him, is absolutely hilarious, so I think that's uh, definitely a good recommendation. And b- before we close uh, off the episode, then, um, why don't you just tell us uh, what your favorite episode of Autism Through Cinema is, if you have one, one that you would really like people uh, to listen to. And perhaps also just uh, finish off with a little uh, sales pitch and uh, we'll leave it there. Okay, great. Um, my favorite episode. This is a tricky one. This is a really tricky one because uh, <laughs> they're all my favorite. No, I think I think I really enjoyed that we did an episode on cat people. And cat people is a 1942 film noir, sort of film noir horror classic, really. Um, it was the first time we welcomed uh, our, at that point, he was our special guest, Ethan Lyon. He's a PhD student who's autistic. Um, and I really like Ethan. He's just got so much enthusiasm for the the films that he talks about. And he brought along Cat People. And Cat People was a film I'd never seen before. So it was a really wonderful discovery. Uh, it's a great film, a really interesting film. And it was also, I think, the moment for our podcast where we really started to to sort of explore some really complex ideas. So I, I really like that one particularly. Um, and so I think that maybe if people wanted to start anywhere, then maybe Cat People is a good start. But yeah, I mean, loads of them are really great. Um, and we've got some good ones in the bag coming up uh, as well, which I'm excited to be listening to. We've we recorded one recently on Chunking Express, which is one of my favorite films of all time with Lillian Crawford, the film journalist. And uh, yeah, that was a really great episode as well. And that's coming out soon. Um, sales pitch. I guess the uh, only way to do a sales pitch on this is to say, you know, it may feel like it's quite a niche topic to think about uh, cinema through the point of view of autism. Um, there's maybe two quite niche interests coming together. Well, maybe cinema is not niche, but it certainly feels like autism is. But I would say that actually, you know, the interest in autism is increasing more and more. Uh, more and more people are either finding out that they are autistic, or you might know people who are autistic. It's it's not uncom- It's ve- it's actually very uncommon to find somebody who doesn't know someone who is autistic. And so, for that reason, I think uh, our podcast is really worth picking up on and, and jumping in on, uh, because what we're trying to do is, yeah, uh, explore a new way of looking at uh, of cinema, a way that's relevant and important. And in amongst all of that, we're also exploring what it means to be autistic, uh, exploring the positives around being autistic, and really celebrating the autistic way of being and, and point of view. And 
so for that reason, I'm really proud of the podcast. I think it's a really great addition to the world of podcasts. And um, I would I would urge everyone to just have a have a listen. You know, our episodes generally tend to only be about an hour long and they're all quite relaxed and quite interesting. So go for it. Excellent. Yeah, and I can just endorse that as well. I, I think it's it really fascinating that the episodes are not just about films with autistic characters or how uh, autistic characters have been represented uh, in cinema and media, but also a lot about films that may not at first glance be about autism or neurodivergence, but really speak to people with autism and how they relate to them. And I think one of the things that we do here on Talking Images uh, is that uh, we try to get many different views of cinema and to you know, share our passion, share how we see these films. And hearing a lot about how neurodivergent people are experiencing these films and how passionate uh, they can be about these films and what they do. That, that was really, really exciting to me and to hear these different viewpoints, uh, etc. So I definitely hope that many of our listeners will go over to uh, Autism Through Cinema and check that podcast out. And uh, I also hope uh, we'll see you uh, back with us uh, soon. So uh, thank you so much for listening and uh, we'll be back in two weeks. You have been listening to Talking Images, the official podcast of icmforum.com.